0: Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. My conviction is, this is my heart, and I hope you'll understand it. Sometimes we get deep, maybe deeper than maybe we should. In a Bible study, but one of my hopes is is that when you come on Wednesday night, you'll learn a bunch of stuff, and next time you read your Bible, all that stuff will come back to mind, or most of it, or some of it, and that you'll be enriched by it because we can't understand the Bible without its context, and so this is why we do what we do, um, and I want you to know that's my heart, and my conviction is I don't want to be I don't want to be the person who dispenses truth to you. I want you to hear these things and go, hey, I can go find it on my own too. And I think that's the—that's my heart is that each of us, I'd like for all of us to be Bible scholars. That, that's my conviction. And so if that's not happening, that could be a failure on my part. Or maybe we're just not taking up our call to do that because our world needs it. We need voices for God in today's world. All right, well, we're going to um, look into this in Isaiah chapter Uh, 8, but we're going to start by wrapping up some things from chapter 7 tonight, and uh, I wanted to mention that whenever we read the Bible, a good practice that I found is uh, we try to understand what's going on, Um, you know, otherwise, if we don't understand the context of it, we start treating the Bible like it's magical verses that we just come to, and then God will shine a light on it, and then it'll say something for us. And then it means whatever we think it means. And the problem with that is that it gets us into a lot of trouble. We need to understand what the Bible means in context. Because if we don't, and we all approach it like, well, this is what it means to me, you'll find people saying, this is what's true. And then other people saying, but to me, it means the opposite of that. And can you see where the problem would be? The problem would be is that we run into uh, loggerheads or frustration in regards to getting at what's truly intended. And so the moment you say that it's just whatever it means to me that that's true, then someone comes back with, maybe for you, but this is what it means to me. And what we come away with is a Bible that's an echo chamber for our own thoughts. And that's what we don't want. We want to hear what God has to say. And if God has to say something to us, we shouldn't be surprised if at times it doesn't resonate with us at first, that we have to come to it again and again and uh, try to hear what he means. Anybody who's been in a conversation with their spouse understands that sometimes you use the same words, but they have different meanings. You know what I mean? Like, you mean this, and they meant that. You said, I will take out the trash later. Well, later to you could mean two days. And later to them means like in 15 minutes. You know what I mean? And so you get frustrated with those kinds of differences. And so uh, communication is a challenge, but the goal, I think, of good communication is to always try to understand what the other person means in their words and not just what I want it to mean. Like, you can use language as manipulation uh, if you wanted to. And we don't want to be an echo chamber, or worse, we don't want the Bible to be a tool for demonic manipulation. Amen? I, you can see that the that the devil uses the Bible to try to convince of things, too, doesn't he? He tells Jesus... Hey, doesn't the Bible say this? <laughs> and he says, Yeah, but you're taking it out of context, buddy. Uh that's my translation anyway. It would be it wouldn't be the first time that the devil used it in that way. And so this is why the Bible needs to be understood in its original context. I want to make that uh case. All right, let's um let's look at chapter chapter seven here uh real quick and then we'll we'll look at chapter nine, Isaiah chapter seven. And uh, what, one of the problems that's happening in Isaiah chapter 7 is that King Hezekiah, I'm not, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here, King Ahaz of um, Judah is trying to get the Assyrians to, into a pact with him, and uh, he's going to use that in order to go to battle against um, is, Israel or Ephraim and Aram who have formed a pact against him. And so they've attacked Jerusalem. He repels them, and now he's worried about that attack again. Isaiah chapter seven. I'm trying to get there as quick as I can. Look at what it says in verse one. When Ahaz son of uh, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not overpowered. And the house of David was told, Aram allied itself with. Uh, Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. Keep that in mind. They're scared. They're scared about Judah and Jerusalem are scared about what this coalition is going to do to them. So uh, out of fear, sometimes we make bad decisions, don't we? Like, what are we going to do if if this really happens? How are we going to deal with this threat? How are we going to deal with this medical condition? How are we going to deal with this lack of Uh, resources in one area or another and and fear can drive people to do some crazy things and one of the things that uh, Happened here is that all of Jerusalem began to fear and so Ahaz makes a coalition with Assyria and that's a dangerous bargain Because they're very powerful and at any moment they have no they, they don't have the same values at any moment They could turn against God's people and so he does that and Isaiah comes and he challenges him about it. And he says, this is the wrong thing to do. Okay. So I wanted to address this because what we know this far in the scripture is that Ahaz has done the wrong thing by trusting in alliance with Assyria rather than trusting the Lord. Okay. Is that clear? He's, they're trusting Assyria rather than trusting in the Lord. That's important to keep in mind. So um, here's what I wanted to deal with. I think this is an important uh, note. I don't want to skip over because it is really important to us, especially being Americans. In 2 Kings chapter 16, it talks about this in verses 7 through 9. It says, Ahaz sent messengers to to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I'm your servant and vassal. Okay. Anybody? What's a vassal? Let's define that a moment. What is it? Not a. <laughs> Like I can no i 'm your vassal, like not uh, maybe a vessel is that what you're thinking of yeah it's like it's like a serf and and somewhat like a slave, but usually you had like a king or what they called a suzerainty, and then a vassal, and the person who's the suzerainty was the person who's powerful and mighty and has lots of resources and power, and you like serve them, and in re- regard to that, they protect you, okay so that's what. That's what Ahaz is doing, is saying, you be our our overlord, and we will be your servant. You protect us, okay? And then he sent items from the temple. I think it talks about that here in the next verse. Oh, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. So where is this telling us that Ahaz, the king of Judah, is putting his trust With the Assyrians, right? He's putting them with the Assyrians. And then it says in verse 8 here of this Second Kings 16, verse 8, And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent them as a gift to the king of Assyria. So you know what those treasures are? That's people's tithes. He's taken that and just sent it off and said, Protect us, okay? The king of Assyria... Complied by attacking Damascus listen and capturing it okay he deported its inhabitants to Kir and he put resin to death okay did Ahaz obey God or not obey God by trusting in Assyria huh disobeyed are we all in agreement Isaiah kind of deals with this a little bit more he disobeyed God and then here's the next question did it work It did work, okay? Here's the point that I'm trying to make is that sometimes you can disobey God and it'll work to accomplish your goal. And the thing that we do as Americans is we believe in a philosophy called pragmatism, which means if it works, it's right. And if you hear it, you'll probably hear it this way. The ends justifies the means, okay, if you get to the proper end. Or um, if it works, well, it worked. Or you'll hear somebody say, well, it worked. Maybe it did work but it wasn't the right thing to do. Do you hear what I'm saying? Pragmatism as a first philosophy is busted because it can't give you a definition of what, what is right. It only says that this thing worked for my, whatever my goals were. And I just want to caution us against uh, living with that philosophy. And the Bible here shows that even though it worked, it was wrong. Even though it worked, it was wrong. And so we have to be careful about believing that working makes it right. That your plan succeed doesn't mean that it was God's will. Are you hearing me? That just because our plan succeed doesn't mean that it's God's will. It worked for now, but at what cost? And you can see this sometimes in fortune telling. People will say, yes, but they got it right. Okay. Well, I think that the I think that the enemy is involved in that and fortune telling. Would you all agree to that? That the there's d- demonic deception in fortune telling. Okay? And that the enemy can sometimes get it right. Would you agree to that? Even the future. And here's, here's how I see that going, is that you could be get it right, and he could allow this to get right and right and right, and you get a few things right and start to follow that and to trust in that. And then he can take you, and he's got you hooked. And he can take you whatever direction. He wants you, once you're convinced that this is the way to get to what's right, he's got you under his control. Chapter 7 deals with that. Chapter 8 is following quick on the heels of this um, whole thing about um, trusting in the wrong kinds of things. And so Isaiah is rebuking Ahaz and Judah for putting their faith in the wrong things. So maybe somebody would be willing to read chapter 8 or part of it for us. Thanks, Ryan. Um, Judah lives in troubling times just like we live in troubling times, okay, there's no um, there's no guarantee in the the life of the Christian that the world around us will be settled all the time there's no guarantee that we'll have peace and safety in fact probably um, in terms of feeling secure I would imagine that among people we probably feel among the most secure in all of history that we feel like we've got a strong government secure borders for the most part probably the thing that's shaken that more for anybody has been nine eleven, but We felt pretty at ease since the end of the Cold War. Um, But we're never really fully secure in this life, and we need to know that, and there's some good that can come out of that. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay in uh, The Weight of Glory called Why I'm Not a Pacifist, and one of the things that um, people often say about war is that you just never know when you're going to die, and he makes the point that uh, in war, it's not necessarily a bad thing because what it does is it forces people to face up to the fact that death is is imminent. At some point, we're going to die. We can live in the illusion that it's just far off and it'll never happen to us. But when there's war, that's the case. And And I think we need to understand that there's health to knowing that. But it's not healthy to trust in the wrong kinds of things. Israel was dealing with the time of turmoil in world history when there were nations, nations to the south, like Egypt, that wanted to come through and conquer and Assyria to the north and Babylon hasn't quite become a power yet, but it's about to and then you have this coalition to the north of The northern kingdoms who are they're the brother to judah, right? I mean, this is a There's a sense in which that's a civil war And they've uh, they've got somebody else to join with them The arameans have been the constant foe of israel and uh, now they're dealing with difficulty and they're kind of shaken There's a lot of people that are shaken in their faith, and one thing that hard times can do is it can really put our faith to the test. We can feel that we're really strong in our faith, but then the moment comes where things get thrown into question, and then we're faced with the reality of what do we really believe? Whom, whom do we believe in? Right? It, who is it that we're we're trusting in? And that's the kind of uh, times that Isaiah and uh, Israel is living. In. I don't think Isaiah's faith is shaken. We. We get a sense of that later on. But he's prophesying, especially to the king who himself is shaken, is looking for uh, some kind of help to deal with this, some kind of relief from that stress, some something in the, the the physical and visible realm that he can look to to trust in because he seems to not be a man who feels he can trust in God. And so he's looking to... Uh, another nation, and he's looking to not only another nation, but a godless nation. One of the reasons why uh, God didn't want them making alliances with other nations is it came with strings attached. It came with religious implications to it, and and not only because they might serve other gods, but because they weren't fully trusting in the God they knew, and that's true in our lives, isn't it, is that we can put our confidence in other things if we're not careful. It's good to It's good to have medicine, isn't it, but we can't put our ultimate confidence there, okay? It's good to have a strong military. We would all agree that we're glad to have a strong military, but we can't put our ultimate confidence there, and it's good to it's good to have education. We can't put our confidence there. It's good to have technology, but once again, you see where I'm going with all of that, is that that can't be our ultimate confidence. And ultimate means when, when everything else is removed, what is, what is at the base of our true confidence? Is it God or something else? Um, yeah, thank God for... All of those things, but they can't be our primary trust. And this is what Ahaz has done. Is he replaced the primary trust of him and of the people of God with something else. That's what he's done. And so Isaiah has something to say about that. He started that in chapter 7, where he says this will be a sign that this, uh, this young woman, he says there Alma, the Hebrew word Alma, which means young woman, uh, the implication is that she's a virgin, and that would carry over into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where she's called uh, Parthenos. Anybody uh, remember what the the structure is on top of the Acropolis in Athens, is called? Parthenon, the virgin. That's what that is. Okay, It's dedicated to Athena, the virgin. But later, interestingly enough, it became a church. I don't know if you knew that, but in time it did become a church, but... Anyway, when uh, Matthew applies this passage, he applies it to Mary. Okay, so he's saying this is true of Mary that she was the virgin. That is really that first one is the initial, but this is the greater, later fulfillment of that prophecy. And so he says, a "Virgin, will, and you'll a virgin will give birth to a son, and you'll call his name, what? What is it? Emmanuel, which means God is with us, right? Okay." So now in chapter 8, we're seeing that fulfillment come about. Um, so you look at this, you see this, I'm going to call it the sun sign, the sun sign, S-O-N sign in verses 1 through 4. You have the prophecy and fulfillment as a powerful demonstration to the people that God had really spoken. And so here's what it is in verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, mahar." Shalah Hashbaz, that's my best attempt, Ryan, and so I called in uh, Uriah the priest and Zachariah the son of uh, Jebarakiah as reliable witnesses for me, and I'm sorry about the way the NIV puts this, and then I went in to my wife as the way I think the ESV puts it, uh, or to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, name him Meher shalah uh, shalah shala hashbaz for before the boy knows how to say my mother and uh my father and my mother the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried away by the, uh, away by the king of Assyria. And so here you have the sun sign that's come and the sun sign is this prophecy that's taking place and in a short time it's going to be fulfilled as a powerful demonstration to the people that God had spoken. The 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 lady's not yet, the prophetess here is not yet pregnant, and yet Isaiah has made this prophecy, and he wrote down on this tablet. So you have the first part of this is the tablet in verses 1 and 2. You see that? They brought in a tablet and he or a scroll, and he writes on it in very plain language. Um, it's plainly written, so anybody could read it. See, God is not trying to cloak all of his truth and mysteries he's trying to reveal, and so you can see that plainly written so anybody could read it, and it's dedicated to a son who's not yet been born, so Isaiah has written down this son's name, and his wife's not even pregnant yet, okay, and the son's name is, anybody want to attempt it, Maher, uh, Shalal Hashbaz, and I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. If you have a margin there, you can see something of a translation of that. It'll tell it in the margin. Um, but so this plaque is plainly written for this son. Okay? And then it's dedicated to a son who's not yet been born, and it's attested by reliable witnesses. So these guys who are reliable guys come in and they say they notarize it, and they're like, yes. He wrote this at this particular date, so when this child's born and they name this child according to this name, that everybody will know it happened in this time frame, okay? So all of this is a, a proof and an evidence for something later to give indication that God knew in advance what was going to happen. So in verses 3 and 4, you have the baby promised by the Lord in verse 3, not virgin born, as you can see from the text here. Okay, Jesus was virgin born, but this child is not virgin born. This is the this is the pre-echo of a later promise, okay? a later promise of a greater son, a true son of David, a son who will put all the enemies out and set all things to right. But you have this this baby, and the baby is named by the Lord in verse three: Maher uh, Shalal Hashbaz. We're going to get this by the end of it, aren't we? And it means this, it means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Okay. Can you imagine having to say this every single time? <laughs> Surely they've got a shortened version of the name, okay? Uh mayher or something like that. I don't I don't know. But it's a, it's a prophecy. His name testifies to something. This is probably the fulfillment, the immediate fulfillment of chapter seven, verse fourteen, this son who will be given as a sign. And you'll give him the name Emmanuel. Now, let's not get too literal on that because you realize that even Jesus' name was not Emmanuel. This is a title that suggests a truth about God. Okay, so um, we have a child who is probably the fulfillment of that. And So if you're troubled by the baby not being named Emmanuel, just remember neither was Jesus. His name is a poetic way of saying that his identity will testify to this truth that God is with you. God is with us as the people of God. So this child in a lesser way fulfills that, but Jesus in a fuller way says God is with us, doesn't he? How does he do that? Let's pause from our uh, lesson tonight for a moment to think about that. How does Jesus fulfill that in a fuller way? Okay, I'm with you always. Any other way you can think of? Okay, that sounds like we're knocking at the door of something really big, doesn't it? Okay? And who is Jesus? The son of God, would would and God in flesh. Right? God in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so in a very literal sense, God is with us in Jesus. Okay? So that's important to keep in mind here. He's the greater fulfillment. We see in verse 4 a witness for the Lord Okay, see what it says here. Verse 4 says um, For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So by the time the boy can say, mom and dad, uh, Damascus will be plundered. Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Israel, will be plundered and will be carried away. And so, this is the meaning of the boy's name, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. It's going to remind them that God knew ahead of time that this was going to happen. It hadn't happened yet, even even though they've made a pact with Assyria. Uh, Ahaz, king of Judah, has made a pact with Assyria, and already things are beginning to be set in motion. Um, God knew ahead of time all of these things were going to take place, and the meaning of this name means that God is in control, okay? That's the real, that's the real subtext here is that quick to the spoil and the plunder suggests that before this child was ever born, God knew that these events were going to take place. And so God knows, and he's in control. And that's important for us to keep in mind that he's in control of this situation. How old is a baby when it begins to say, mom? and dad or mom how old just a year okay anybody want to go for nine months no, I, I don't I don't really know I'm just asking about a year okay the baby the baby's not been conceived yet but a document was signed at some point there was marital intimacy there was a child conceived so from the time that this statement was made until after the child can say mom and dad has been how long Two years, so sometime within that prophecy and within that mom and dad time, this is this is when God's going to fulfill the promise. So it's a very short promise and fulfillment. When we we hear about um, Emmanuel in terms of Jesus, how long is that from the time Isaiah prophesied it in chapter seven till its its bigger fulfillment? How long? Anybody have a guess? It's, it's seven hundred at least. 700, probably something like, I think 732 is probably a good estimate about that. So if you think Jesus probably born in 4 BC, it's between 7 and 4 BC, you can kind of get an idea of where that's at. But long time. But this is quick fulfillment. And that's easier to measure because the people who've heard the original prophecy and see its fulfillment are still alive. Whereas those who heard him say this of Jesus, they were l- dead and gone, and a future generation got to see that fulfillment. And so it's a very short time, less than two years, from pregnancy to um, him saying uh, this will happen. So the immediate context is this, that the prophet Isaiah's wife, his young woman, has a baby that demonstrates God's sovereignty and presence with Judah, and yet Judah is turning away and looking to other things. I'm using sovereignty here to mean the power of God over everything. And that doesn't mean he wills everything but it's it's winning. It's his winning response to the actions of men. Okay, he responds in a winning way, and and oftentimes not only does he respond, but he precedes the action with the response so that it works toward his good. This is sovereignty, and then by presence, I mean that God's co- it's God's covenant presence, which is more than just being someone in proximity. Like, you know what I mean? That I don't I don't know if you have recognized this, but. The the longer you're married, sometimes it's just nice to be in the room together. You don't have to be talking. Is that true? You know what I'm talking about? Like there's a comfortability. Like when you're when you're young and dating, there's an intensity and a heat to the relationship, right? Yes. Okay, I hope so. And then uh, when you get a little further in relationship, that's um, calmed down into a steady fire. That uh, you don't have to be making out all the time. Right. You can just enjoy one another's presence. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying that there's a calmness about that and there's a just being with someone. Okay, when we're talking about the way that God is with us here, it's not just a proximity thing. Like when you're sitting with your spouse and um, watching television or whatever, you're in close proximity to each other. When God says I'm with you, um, this is a covenant uh, kind of thing where he's saying not only is my presence with you, but it's with you in order to accomplish my purposes. So I'm with you in the way that my power is with you also, and my purpose is with you to accomplish what I intend to happen. See, when God says I'm with you, it's more than, hey, let's just walk together and see where this road goes. This is like God saying, I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to direct your steps, and we're going to get you to where you need to be. That's what I am with you means. Aren't you glad for that? It's not just a casual walk into the oblivion, but it's with a God who knows where he's going. And uh, that's true even if him getting us to his purpose for us is through discipline. Okay? And they need to know that because they're about ready, the nation's about ready to go through discipline. And one thing that can really shake our faith is when God disciplines us and we begin to feel like he doesn't love us anymore. Or we go through some troubling times and we go, I wonder if God's abandoned me. And so when God says ahead of time, I'm with you, he's telling you that even through these things, I'm going to accomplish my purpose in you. And that's really good to hang on to. And so the later meaning of the sign was to point to God's presence in his son, Jesus. But here he's simply saying to God's people, Judah, I am with you. Now I wanted to share quickly a word about signs. I don't know how quick this is going to be, but, um, I have several things here, because when I was studying for this, it occurs to me that I should say uh, some things, because it's not uncommon for Christians to be looking for signs when they should be talking to God. Okay, And I, I think this is really important. Um, I wish we could do a deep dive and see all the uses of signs in the Bible and what they are and what they aren't, but it's not really the f- main focus here. And so I just want to make some General statements and trust that you look into them yourself if you have more questions about them. Okay, so you look into the Bible about them. The first thing is, and there's seven things here that I want to mention real quickly, is that signs are used by God in the Bible. Everybody agree? Signs are used by God in the Bible. The number two thing here is that signs have never been the primary way God spoke to his people. They're never the primary way. They're only secondary ways his word is the primary way. In fact, the signs that he often gives, he's already spoken face-to-face with a prophet somewhere. Okay, so that's a better way. Would you all agree? Is it better to speak face-to-face or have a sign? Nobody wants it to say? I think face-to-face is preferred. That shares intimacy. So the third thing is this, that signs are secondary indicators that confirm something that's happening or will happen. Like something that's happening is that God is near. When Jesus performs signs, it's, it's something, it says that God is near in this moment. Or something that will happen, a future event, to recognize it. That this sign has come ahead of time so that when a later event happens, you'll see it for what it is. Okay? The fourth thing is that signs from God ultimately point to what? To trusting in God. Signs from God are, point, are pointers, trusting God. The fifth thing is that signs are, listen to this, signs are almost always decided on by God and not us. There's two exceptions that I can think of in the Bible, and there may be more, but you, you look that up if you, you want to. Gideon asked for a sign, didn't he? And then God says to Ahaz, tell me what sign you would like to see in heaven, the highest heavens or the lowest earth. The rest of the time, whenever there's a sign, God's the one choosing, saying, this is the sign. This is the sign. See it. Okay? It's not people saying, God, give me this. Like, if I make it through this red light, if I make it through this light, then I will witness to my neighbor. And if I don't make it, then I'm not going to witness to my neighbor. Don't do that. That's more like paganism. Okay? Uh, So, the signs are usually, almost always, decided by God and not by people. And then six, signs can become an unhealthy or an unhealthy demand from people who reject God's word. And my indication of this is from the New Testament when uh, the religious leaders and the people are always saying to Jesus, perform this sign and prove who you are. Perform this sign. And he says, a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign. Okay, so be careful about that. And then number seven, and I think this is really important to keep in mind is that signs as communication drastically diminish in the Bible after the descent of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. they drastic why because we don 't need that anymore. We have the Holy Spirit as the witness okay those are those become minimized after the coming of the Holy Spirit. so be careful about sign seeking uh, one of the Assyrian kings who comes later, ashurbanipal um, He used to sacrifice animals and look at their livers and determine whether he should go to war or not, how many people he should conquer based on the shape of the liver. And so that was a kind of sign reading that was common in paganism. You see it over and over again. Uh, But we look to the word and not to the liver, right? So um, usually God chose to announce the sign, and you'll find if you'll find yourself vulnerable to manipulation if you try to read everything as a sign of this or that, especially when it comes to determining God's will. So be careful, even if it works, as we talked about earlier. Um, be careful, because just it working doesn't mean that it was approved by God. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, uh wrote a book called Finding God's Will, and he suggests these five things quickly. If you want to know God's will, read your Bible. That's sound wisdom, isn't it? Number two... Develop a heart for God, because when you live in consistent relationship with him, you know what pleases him. You know what a loving relationship looks like. You can have a conversational relationship with God. He can speak to you in that moment. You hear his heart. You know his heart. You develop a heart for him. You want to do what's right. Your motivations are right. It moves you in the right direction. Number three is seek wise counsel. This is really good. A lot of times um, people just... Develop their opinion about what they want to do they don't ask anybody else who's been down the road a little bit And that's unfortunate because there's wise counsel in the body of christ one of the reasons We're given the body of christ and then number four is look for god's providence god is leading and guiding And many times if you'll look back you can see what it is that he's been doing And how he's providentially Arranged things and then here's going to be one. I know is going to challenge some of us, but listen Does it make sense? doesn't make sense. Okay, notice I didn't mention that first because there's other things to consider in advance of that. But God did not give us a brain for no reason. Are you with me? Like sometimes God's will doesn't make sense to us because we don't have all the information. But here's what I guarantee you. If you knew what God knew, it would make sense because God is not a God of absurdity. If we knew what he knew, but we don't know all that he knows. And so sometimes he asks us to step out in faith. And if you need a scripture for this, once again... I'm telling you what I think is important, but you need to search it out for yourself, is that sound judgment informed by the truth makes wise spiritual decisions. When you know the truth and you use the wise judgment God's given you, you can make good decisions. Acts 15, they're, verse 28, they're dealing in Acts 15 with a doctrinal issue that's going to affect the church from then on. Anybody know what Acts 15 is about? It's the Jerusalem Council, and they're trying to determine whether they should require circumcision for entrance into the faith. And so Peter comes and gives a testimony. Paul gives a testimony. The Judaizers give their testimonies. James and the church leaders step aside. They pray, and they come back with this. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Do you hear that? That's the part of sound judgment. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit. We prayed about it. Spirit spoke seems good to us we're in agreement so why is the holy spirit's direction and sound judgment it making sense do not have to be in conflict okay if you've taken in all the facts it doesn't always make sense on a natural level but if you account for the providence and the miracle working power and the wisdom and foresight of god then some things make sense like stepping out in faith makes sense when you consider that god has all the resources That makes sense, because we just know that he can provide. So it's not, uh, we've got this idea that it has to not make sense for it to be exciting, and it doesn't. I think it's really wonderful when both those things work together. It's not that God can't use signs anymore. I want to mention that. I think I, uh, it's that I think more is available for us who have the Bible and the Holy Spirit in residence than um, for him to have to put out another indicator somewhere else And in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And and we do. And so we can rely upon that leadership. Uh, Most of the signs we deal with are ones that are already given in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And as we move on to a different um, point here, I'm not asking you to take mine as the final word on this, but regard it as a concern from someone who cares. Be careful about signs. Um, The reason for a sign here is to show that God knew ahead of time what would happen so that when the time came or the trouble came, God's people would remember and trust him because he's always trying to get us to trust him. You agree? And so let this scripture remind us God cares for his people, including you and me. Let's look at the gentle waters and the flood in verses five through 10, the gentle waters and the flood. This is the next point you can see Isaiah making here. Verse five says, um, the Lord spoke to me again. Yes, the Lord spoke to me again. This people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, and rejoices over resin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. The king of Assyria with all his pomp will overflow all its channels and run over all the banks and sweep into Judah Swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck—sounds desperate. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. Okay, so does that sound good or bad? That last part—the water is coming up to the neck. The flood water is over, reaching the bank. Good or bad? Bad. What sounds really good about that time when you're getting drowned by the flood? The gentle well, that primarily, but how about the gentle waters of Shiloah and that sound good, like a trickling spring you can you can think of uh that so here here's the picture for us, I think when you we get this picture, it's really powerful. the gentle waters of Shiloah, let me see if I can bring something up that will help us here okay, there's okay, here is. Jerusalem a map of Jerusalem this is going to include a little bit of later additions that we wouldn't see in Isaiah's time but we can still make the point from that you can see right here this is the city of David the old city Okay, and then here's like Nehemiah's walls down here and some later additions to the city this is the Kidron Valley that runs right here the Valley of Hanom right there okay the Mount of Olives over here Okay, so he's talking about a gentle waters of Shiloah. In uh, Jesus' time, they wouldn't have had this, but there's the Gihon Springs. I think they're right up here. I can't see very well with that. But then an aqueduct that ran down here to what is became the Pool of Siloam later on. But before it became the Pool of Siloam, which is down here, um, it became these this spring that ran down and it was a gentle way to feed the city with nourishing water, because water's hard to come by in, in Israel. And so what you see is this aqueduct going from the upper city to the lower city and providing water for people who need it. And it was nourishing, and it was safe, and it was gentle flowing. It wasn't raging. It wasn't overflowing its boundaries. It was, it was what everybody needed. Can you get that picture? It's what everybody needed. When you hear gentle waters of Shiloah, it's what everybody needed. Okay. But instead, they've rejected that, and they've turned to the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, uh, which, if you looked at the Euphrates, and you looked at the little aqueduct that was carrying water down, you would think, this aqueduct is weak. It seems weak. Okay. On appearance, it seems like that's not a great source of water. And you look at the mighty Euphrates, and you think, that's powerful. Okay. So what Isaiah's doing here is he's saying, what you've done... Is you've traded what looked weak to you for something that looks strong, the Euphrates. You've traded trust in God for trust in Assyria. That's the point that he's trying to make. Trust in God. It doesn't look like what God has there is much, but it's provided nourishment, it's taken care of you. And what you've looked to instead is massive and mighty, but dangerous, okay, because it can overflow. In flood season and the Bible is always trying to make this point is that you can't always judge by appearances I know I've just talked about how we need to use sense, but we need to use sense that's been enlightened by the Bible and so sometimes what seems like this should be the natural choice will not be it so they look to like Ahaz is looking to uh, Assyria that's the Euphrates the mighty Euphrates river and what they've rejected is God these gentle waters of Shaloah you see the the point that's trying to be made there. The gentle waters of shaloah have been rejected in favor of the mighty appearing of the Euphrates River, and what God says to Isaiah to tell Ahaz and the people is that there will be consequences for choosing the one over the other, and the one consequence is that it will run wild and it cannot be contained. You've chosen the Euphrates, you get the Euphrates, and it's got consequences with it. You choose the gentle waters. And and just notice, in Scripture, how many times is this, okay, you know, there's a mighty king in Jerusalem sitting on the throne during Jesus' day, wasn't there? I wouldn't call him mighty, but a puppet king anyway. He had a pomp and circumstance, didn't he? What was his name? Jesus, Herod, okay. Herod. And he had Caesar in Rome and he looked powerful, didn't he? But who was the king of all the universe? Born in a a peasant's home. Lived in a rural northern little town and he died for the sins of the whole world he died he died a slave's death on every natural appearance it looked like nothing what about the voice of the Lord remember when God spoke to Elijah and he brought the whirlwind and he brought the mighty storm and then he brought the gentle voice he says which one is me now God's more powerful than Assyria This is Isaiah talking about how it looks from the appearance of humanity. It looks like this is only this. But what you need to know is it's what's nourished you and fed you, and it actually is at heart very powerful. And so the Euphrates, if you trust in Assyria, it overwhelms, it brings destruction, as do all false trusts eventually. And this is what happened. Assyria did come to attack Judah. After they had dispensed with um, the enemies of Judah, and then they then they came for them, okay. And that's the way the enemy. If you get in cohorts with uh, the devil, like people who get wrapped up in witchcraft, they find that maybe they're using spells to try to to try to um, overlord or master other people through their spells, whether that works or not. Uh, they find themselves also in bondage. Like it's not a way to freedom, and that's what a lot of people in the Greek world were doing is that they would say these chants and they would pray these prayers to their idols, but they would bring themselves in bondage under the demonic. And so the devil doesn't play by uh, rules that we would play by. He he, uh, will offer us the world and he'll take our soul, you know? And so this is what happened. They did come. And the message seems to be, since you would not receive the gentle and the easy way, you're going to get the ruly and the, unwi- and the wild. And it's not that Assyria is greater than God. It just appears so. And we need to remember that what appears great may be less great, and what appears helpful may be destructive. What appears powerful may be less powerful. And so we can't go by the appearance of power, the loudness of speech, as many people do. You know, the world talks loud, and it has lots of shiny things, but God really delivers on his promises, doesn't he? And that's the difference. So don't trust in the wrong things because it will devastate you, Trust in God. And then in verse 9, Isaiah's good about doing this. As you're reading through this, keep in mind that there's kind of a frenetic uh, back and forth with him. There's an oscillation between judgment and hope. And so you might come to this verse and go, well, now what's this talking about? Well, in verses 9 and 10, it vacillates back to hope. So he's talked about destruction. Now he looks at hope. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Listen, you distant lands. Wait a minute, that is not right. Where is nine? Raise the war cry, you nations. Okay, and be uh, be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will not. But it will be thwarted. Purpose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. So now he's saying, okay there will be hope he shifts back isaiah shifts back and forth between these judgments and the pronouncement of hope he wants god's people to know that uh, god takes sin seriously and their consequences but he also wants them to know that there's hope and that they shouldn't despair in the middle of discipline okay that's important the enemy will not ultimately prevail okay he's not going to abandon them in their sins that He shifts back to the ultimate victory of God's people who belong to him. And uh, God with us is a promise that even through the discipline, um, it may be for a time that God will bring them through. For God is with us. John Oswald says um, that it's important that we understand God who is part of the world has entered into our finite and finititude and mortality through Christ and thus brings us into fellowship with himself. So God with us is the guarantee of victory. Assyria will come. They will try to overwhelm the land, but they will not have the ultimate victory. That's what these verses say, verses 9 and 10. Before that, you have put your confidence in the wrong kinds of things, and there will be consequences, but they will not be ultimate consequences if God is on your side and if you'll trust once again in him. Let's uh, quickly go to verses 11 through 15, the fear of the Lord and other things. The fear of the Lord and other things, and I think we can do it with that. Look at verse 11 where it says there, the strong hand of the Lord was upon me. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Not to follow the way of this people. The strong hand of the Lord was upon me. Anybody, anybody want to guess what what that might mean? strong hand of the Lord on me. The presence of the Lord, especially strong and intense. And it came with force and its message. Don't be like this people. God cares how we live. And he's telling Isaiah, and those who will listen to him, don't follow the way of this people. In verse 11, this people, this people, do you hear that? This people in verse uh In in Isaiah, I should say, it's used nine times. And it's a term of intentional distance. Why would he say this people when he could say my people? Because he does say my people 26 times in the book. But whenever he's dealing with them in judgment, he says this people. Can you hear that? Like when parents say, you know what your son did today? Not my son. I want you to know he's acting not like me. Uh, nine times in Isaiah, it's this term of intentional distance for God's people who are not living like his people. And it rebukes them for their behavior that is is not appropriate for people trusting God. Uh, my people is a term of endearment. Well, here's an interesting thing, because uh, the word this is called the near demonstrative. It means that it's something that's nearer. Okay, so if I were to tell you this bag right here is my bag, um, I'm saying it's pretty close to me. But if I said that bag is my bag, I'm saying that's far away. That's the far demonstrative, okay? And so what God doesn't say here, and I'd like you to notice this, he doesn't say that people. Do you see that? He hasn't pushed them away completely. There's not complete distance. He's saying this people. They're still near. but They're not acting like me. This people. Um, it, uh, that people refers to real relational distance. This people is a near And it means they're God's people, but they're out of step with him and under his displeasure. And it reminds us of when Moses and God were debating during the wilderness time about whose people they were. Do you remember that? This people that you gave me. Those people, you should lead those people to wherever you're taking them. But um, this uh, doesn't mean that God has abandoned his covenant. It means he's unhappy with them. And so the Lord warns Isaiah not to be like this people in verse 12. And first thing he deals with is regarding fear. How do, you, how do you deal with fear? He says, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. That's verse uh, 12. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. I think this is some really wise counsel here. He talks about fear and dread. Uh, he mentions um, here the fear of the Lord. You should fear the Lord instead to fear here is to take something seriously okay I think um, you know when you're dealing with different fractions okay when you talk about fear we talk about like fear of the dark and we can be f- afraid of what's something we can be afraid of what dogs okay dogs okay dogs you can be afraid of dogs but then you're talking about fear of God those two things aren't exactly the same are they Okay, so um, in math, we do something like this, is that when you're dealing with fractions, you bring things down to the lowest common denominator so you can work together with them, right? So if you want to find out what one-sixth of one-half is, then you, you figure out what one-half is in terms of sixth, and then you get to the lowest common denominator. Is that right? And so then you're, you're with uh, three-sixths, and then you can figure out that it's, it reduces to two-sixths, which is one-third. There's a little math lesson for you. And uh, you, what you've done is brought it down to the lowest common denominator. And when we talk about this kind of fear, the lowest common denominator that I can understand in terms of fear that relates the di- fear of different things with the fear of God is to take something seriously as something of consequence. Okay? So when you think about... God, a lot of people treat God as if he's not, it's not a very serious thing. His word's not very serious, and he's not really serious about what he said, and he's not serious about his promises, and he's not serious about his threats, and he's not really somebody that's of consequence. But when you think of him as having great consequence, and that he's serious about what he means, and he has the power to fulfill all of his promises, we can get something closer to what the fear of the Lord means. It doesn't mean to walk in a kind of dread of him where you hate being around him because... You're just too afraid to go to him. But it means to take him very seriously. Okay, so what people are doing, I'm almost out of time here. We'll have to finish this next time. Is they're taking all of the threats seriously, but they're not taking God seriously. Okay, so Assyria, maybe. I don't know at this point, but definitely uh, Aram and Ephraim. That's serious to them. Everybody's talking in their homes. What are they going to do next? Is there a column, a fifth column within Judah that's going to join with them and attack us from the inside? And they're talking about all of these conspiracy theories. And I'm telling you, a lot of people, <laughs> I remember my my parents liked to do this as a hobby. They weren't real serious about it, but they talked about conspiracies. And one of the things that I remember hearing growing up is that on the backside si- back of street signs, there were these little orange tags, and they're there. But I tested this other part out. They're always there on the side that's closest to railroad tracks because they're going to use that as a sign system when they round up Christians and deport them to be executed. And so I tested that theory out, and I found out that it wasn't always on the side of train tracks. And so somebody got some wild idea and sold a bunch of books based upon all that. But they love to sit around and talk about stuff like that. And by the time I got to be an adult, I got tired of it. Because there, you can't get to the bottom of half of this stuff. And so I don't even have any time for that. I want to talk about what is serious and what we can know about God. Let's talk about that. To me, that's interesting. To me, we can build a life upon that. The other stuff, you can't. Okay, because you can't get to the bottom of it. Sure, there are things out there. Now we have the Internet, and there are layers upon layers, mountain upon mountain, and miles deep of buried stuff, and who knows what. You know who knows the answer to it all? God does. And can I trust him? Sure. I can trust him. So Isaiah challenges people with, God challenges Isaiah, don't fall into these speculations about what and why rather than trusting the Lord. John Oswalt says Isaiah challenges his people to reject paranoia and see God's hand in, in the events of their time. To refuse to do so is to become more and more fearful more and more unstable, for it means that our lives are ultimately in the hands of unknown powers, too devious for us to know or control. Instead, we trust in God. We can't know what's behind everything, but we can know God, and we can know that in the end, he wins. And so, there's a lot of blissful ignorance that I can claim in life. Like, I don't I don't have to know who shot JFK to have peace at night. Are you with me? And I don't even want to speculate about it, because... Somebody else is going to come along with a better argument soon enough and tell us. But if you do know who it is, let me know. Just kidding. That goes against everything I'm saying here. We need to trust the Lord with things that we can't fully know. Okay, and so this whole conspiracy thing was creating a climate um, of terror rather than fear in the Lord. And they failed to take seriously God's promises with them, to be with them. God's promises to them. His presence with them, his promises to them, and his power for them, and also his requirements of them, which is a very serious thing as well. And I don't really think people have changed that much from Isaiah's day. This shows how people in Isaiah's day were caught up in this drama of current events, and they were talking about threats of other nations, um, and they were taking that seriously, and they weren't talking about the Lord very seriously. And All the while, they didn't know that there were bigger things that were happening than just the current events. There were big purposes of God that we're undertaking that we're going to last generations and generations beyond that. And so we should be different, I think. And and, uh, there's more on this I can't get to because we're out of time. It's really important. It deals with the uh, holy place and the cornerstone and the stumbling block. And then there's the true witness and the false witnesses and we'll have to deal with that next week. Hey, thanks for your attention tonight. Let's uh, stand and pray. I feel that maybe um, if there's something that's weighing on you that's heavy, that's a concern, I want to ask you to, to give that burden to the Lord tonight and that you trust him with it. I think that's uh, his will for you and me. Okay, Father, thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted with these things. And though we know that there are big things going on in the world and things that seem to have great national consequence, international consequence, we know that the end of history is yours and that you will set all things to right. And when you come for those who are yours, you'll vindicate the righteous. And establish us with, with new bodies. And uh, you will give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you help us to trust you in the big and the small. Lord, in terms of our health and finances, our family, uh, the good of the world, which seems to be in a very bad state right now. And so this message is so important and really applies if only I could communicate what's at your heart, Lord. I just pray that you help us to glean tonight from what you've tried to say in Isaiah to us about how we can trust in the way that Ahaz should have, in the way that Isaiah prophesied we should. And I pray, Lord, you help us to be stronger for it, to have broad, uh, broad, a broad base of faith that helps us to live in today's world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening.